Welcome back to Climate Champions, a four-part podcast series that forms part of our broader digital series, Turning the Tide. Each episode, we speak to inspiring individuals from small island developing states about the climate change issues affecting their communities and the innovative solutions they're working on. I'm Naomi Mahara, a producer here at DevEx. And I'm Rebecca Root, a reporter here at DevEx. And this week, we're focusing on the Pacific nation of Kiribati. Kiribati is made up of around 33 islands, and it's home to roughly 115,000 people. Its highest points lie just a few meters above sea level, making it one of the most vulnerable countries to rising sea levels. Like many other small nations, though, Kiribati has one of the lowest carbon emission footprints in the world. In December, our reporter Helen Morgan went to COP25 in Madrid. It was widely judged a failure because of a lack of ambition and agreement on key issues like carbon trading. And representatives from small island developing states were among the most vocal about the conference's shortcomings. But one of the people Helen got to speak to was Anote Tong, who was president of Kiribati from 2003 to 2016. Over this period, he was quite forward-thinking and developed the country's climate change adaptation strategy, dedicating himself to raising awareness globally about the threats posed by climate change. He's been particularly outspoken about the need to prepare for what many see as the inevitable, relocating Kiribati's entire population. So much so that Kiribati purchased 6,000 acres of land on Fiji in 2014. He calls the approach migration with dignity. So as we'll hear, the new government in Kiribati has strongly contested that approach. But since leaving office, Anote continues to be highly active in the global arena, advocating for the need for larger, more polluting countries to take action to limit global emissions. And he started off by explaining how he first became aware of the severity of the climate change crisis. The story of climate change is not a new one. I think it's uh, it's come up uh, in the past with uh, uh, other, other Pacific Island leaders, and especially the Tuvalu Prime Minister in the 1990s. Uh, but for me personally, it was something that I was aware of as I was going into, uh, into office. And so from 2003, I started reading on the reports coming out of the IPCC, and uh, the, the predictions were not good for us. And so I was worried because um, even if the, the, the possibility was 5-10% of what was being pre- pre- predicted is true, we need to be worried. But by the fourth assessment report, it really was much more conclusive. The, the science had uh, been resolved. There was what happened previously, as I've now come to understand it, was uh, a strong lobby to invalidate the reports of the IPCC by the energy companies. But uh, the, the science was always sound, it was good. And so the predictions that were being put forward were telling us that we've got a disaster coming. And so I began to take very serious uh, note of what it meant for us. And I think up to then, the focus of the science community was on the science, not so much on what it meant for people. I remember there was a time when there was a focus on the, what it would mean for the polar bears, but never about people. And so I did m- make reference to that in one of my addresses at the United Nations General Assembly. I can, I can tell you that when I started thinking about it, I, it was very difficult because I could not understand why, if this was true, if the science was correct, why, why countries who are doing this, who are causing this, can continue to do so. 
So that went on for quite a period of time until much later after Copenhagen, because Copenhagen was quite a dismal failure. And, um, but after that, there, there seemed to have been a, a slight change of uh, thinking. Maybe because there was a change of, uh, of uh, guard at the United Nations, the, the new Secretary General came in, and also the change in the, in the presidency within the United States. And uh, perhaps those two work, uh, culminated together to bring about what is happening today. What kinds of local initiatives are you seeing in KUS to adapt to or mitigate the impacts of climate change? We had a policy when I, during my time of uh, protecting public property. And so we built seawalls, we help people, our communities to build seawalls. But we cannot afford to build seawalls around the islands because that's where it's all happening. How resilient those are, I, they're not resilient at all. They have no resilience because they're not based on good engineering. We needed a, a much more sustainable design that would give us the ability to remain resilient, climate resilient for the next maybe 50, 100 years. At the moment, we have nothing like that. I've just come from, from uh, Bougainville in, in Papua New Guinea, and they're telling us stories of islands that are disappearing. And so it's happening all over the place. All you need to do is have somebody go around and take pictures, okay, and tell the story. There is no truth at all in, uh, in the, 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 the suggestion which came about as a result of a survey carried out some years ago that the, the atolls are growing. I mean, that, that's a one-off study of the past uh, four decades, not the, the, the five or ten years since, because that's what, is, what we are experiencing, what I'm experiencing in, with my own seawall is the, the waters are coming over it now. They did not come over it uh, 10 years ago. And so we are seeing a rapid escalation of what is, what is coming. So you've also been outspoken about the need to plan for migration with dignity. And so this was actually one of the initiatives that you put in place during your term. Um, could you talk about that and other solutions that you, that you worked on? The IPCC reports say that um, even if uh, as a global community, we're able to achieve uh, a reduction in emissions to zero. Our islands will continue to be submerged with the rising tides, based on the, uh, the, the momentum of what's already in the atmosphere. And so how does, what conclusion could one draw but to assume that something, uh, a catastrophe is about to happen? And so. You don't wait around, you, start, you, you must begin to plan. L let me tell you, it's not easy to try to come to terms with uh, uh, something like that. And I can assure you, it, it's one of the most painful things that I've ever had to, to go through. Uh, understanding and coming to realize and to acknowledge that uh, you have no option hmm? but that. And I can understand why the, the denial of this, because that's the, the most comfortable reaction, to deny it. I was also getting terminologies like uh, your people will become climate refugees and so it was a rejection of those that I came up with the notion of uh, migration with dignity what it is it's, it's a proactive response okay you're not waiting for it to happen because you know it's going to happen so work on it and address it today to imagine and think that the tide is going to come in one moment it's not going to happen like that and when that moment comes you lift everybody and put them somewhere else no. This is a rational uh, process taken over time. Okay? 
gradually so that you can spread the commitment of resources over a period of time that you can also uh, plan it in such a way that it's not also so pa painful for the communities that you are taking them to. You just don't take 100,000 people and put them in somebody's front garden. That's not the way things happen. You have a disaster. And so migration with dignity is a proactive response that you know that of something that you know is going to happen. Don't wait for it to happen and then begin to plan for it. And, but I think more importantly that people will have the skills, the preparation, and take the choice today if they choose to do so. But migrate as people with skills, worthwhile citizens, not as second-class citizens. So you left office in 2016 and the current administration has quite a different perspective on this, this issue. Right. How do you see your role now, given this difference in the current leadership's priorities? Yeah, so I, I, one thing that's changed is the migration. They want to, to just rub out the idea of migration with dignity. To say that people are not going to move, that's not only unrealistic, but it's, 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 it's highly dangerous. And it's the kind of uh, policy that I wanted to avoid, you know, the reactive uh, policy. If they can come up with anything better, I'd be, the, 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 I'd be so happy. But if they cannot and they're doing it out of whatever reason, it would be, it would be so sad. One of the issues that I wanted to, to do was actually to build climate resilience um, and uh, to try to mobilize the resources. What I wanted to do is move it early because it's going to get difficult, more difficult as time go by, uh, goes by. And the reason is this. When I was saying these things, we were the nations facing the existential threat. But I tell you, today, every other nation is facing an existential threat. So the scramble for resources to build resilience is going to be a long queue. That's why I wanted it to happen early, so that we can do it and demonstrate that it's doable and what it takes to make it happen. Um, what advice would you give to other uh, small island developing states and climate activists from those countries um, on how to influence climate policy both locally uh, and also on, at the global level? You know, let, let me be quite honest with you on this one because I didn't know where I was going myself on this one. It's, un it's uncharted territory and I think there's a lot of denial uh, within a lot of people. I, it, there is always that hope that Hopefully it's not true, but I think uh, whatever the outcome, if, as I said, if there is a very slight possibility that it might happen, then I think I believe we need to plan for it. And so I think what's happened in the, with other uh, my colleagues around the region is they went by the same thing. They went through the same emotional uh, stages that I did, and uh, also rejected the idea of leaving the islands. It's a sense of nationality, okay, but it's uh, it's got to be. It's, it, it's got to be rational, and it's got to be practical, uh, very brutally practical, okay? And uh, I know that there is also a deep sense of religion in the, in the, in the, in the region, and there's this belief uh, also, actually, uh, regrettably, uh, I think initiated by the, our church leaders, that uh, don't worry, God will deal with this. And I think it's the most, it's one of the most, the silliest thing that ever to think about. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
God didn't make this come about. And uh, God has created man with the intellect and the capability to do things wrong or to do things well. We've chosen to do it wrong. Now we are being sent the wisdom and the, the, the knowledge by our scientists to be warned that this is coming and let's, that we need to do something about it. We must not ignore that. The scientists are the prophets of today. What message do you have for the global community on what action needs to be taken to ensure a future for countries like Kiribati? Again, it's, uh, it's about inclusion. It's about not thinking about yourself, understanding that uh, what you do here in, uh, in, in Madrid has implications for what happens in, uh, to people on the other side of the world. Okay, so if, we, if here in Madrid we continue to burn coal, we may not uh, feel the impact straight away, but somebody else on the other side of the world is, and we will be at, at stake, at risk. But the reality is nobody's immune from this. I mean, Australia is a huge country, uh, not, not vulnerable to sea level rise, but see what's happening with the, the, the fires. Okay, so it comes in different forms. And um, but I think that the simple message is that we, we're all in this together. And we must try to address it collectively because, and we've got to all play our part. Wow, well, I really have to say that I loved the line um, about scientists being the prophets of today. And that whole intersection of climate change and religion isn't one that I've, I've heard come up before, or at least not something that I've kind of been aware of up until this point. Yeah, that's interesting because it really highlights the sensitivities of the whole migration question. Obviously, it's people's lives and they don't want to have to leave their, their homes and their the, the lands that they've lived on for so long. But when you bring in this kind of religious aspect or sort of that it's God's work, it sort of complicates the matter even more, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That must pose a massive barrier because you're, as you say, you're not just asking people to leave their homes, you're asking them to, to change the way that they think about the world. And, and in some cases, you're asking them to think differently about about their religion, which may have been ingrained in, in their culture and society for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. I did really like his final message about the importance of um, inclusion and the need for the global community to cooperate and the idea that you know, we are all in this together and obviously he mentioned Australia fires and it's kind of becoming less and less possible for the rich uh, developed world to ignore the impacts of climate change. Absolutely and I thought his his tone was was something a little bit different than we might have heard with other people that we've interviewed because I guess he's someone that's very very seasoned in this topic and he's been drilling these messages home for well, since 2003 and probably before that um and so whereas we, we maybe hear from many people in power today who you are who are peddling the climate change message but kind of doing it as if oh it just crept upon us like the here is a guy who's like i've been saying this for years as you say it really highlights also the key leadership role in a way that small island developing nations are playing in this this whole issue because they are the ones that are seeing kind of frontline the impacts on their communities and uh, so it was great to be able to to have his voice included and great that Helen and managed to, to bag him on such a, a busy, busy week. Yeah, absolutely. And you can read more of our coverage from COP25 in Madrid on devex.com. We had a team of reporters there. And you can also visit turningthetide.devex.com for more articles and content focusing specifically on what small island states are doing to adapt to climate change. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be hearing from another climate champion from a small island nation about the work they're doing within their communities. Mm-hmm.